Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 8th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Walking with God, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Genesis chapters 17 through 20. Enjoy. We are in Genesis 17 through 20 this morning, and we're going to approach all four chapters in light of one theme, and our big theme this morning is going to be walking with God. Um, what is required for us to walk with God? Uh, we're going to hop right into it this morning. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 says this When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The one big command he gives him right off the bat, walk before me and be blameless. I'm sure you've heard about walking with God before. In fact, we'll oftentimes ask this, kind of Christian to Christian, believer to believer. We'll ask the question, how's your walk? You've heard this before. I know we've talked about this. How's, how's your walk? What we're talking about is our relationship with God. How's your relationship with God? How's that going? Is it rocky? Is it pretty smooth? Is it kind of this up and down thing like a lot of us go through? Is it kind of windy or do you, you feel separated? you feel cut off? Like what's going on with your relationship with God? So when God tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, what he's saying is be in a relationship with me. Be, be close to me, be with me. Not just this like idea of being close to me, but actually relationally be close to me. So this morning, like I said, we're gonna look at four chapters and in those four chapters, we're gonna see five stories. And from each one of those stories, we're gonna draw a principle for what's required for us as believers to walk with God. So the first thing we see is that walking with God requires obedience. Walking with God requires obedience. If we look back at Genesis 17, one through five, we'll start in verse three. It says, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. This is what Abraham means, by the way, father of many or father of multitude. Uh, and if you're familiar with stuff in the Bible, God oftentimes changes people's name, right? He just now changed from Abram to Abraham. Um, in a chapter, he's gonna change Sarai to Sarah, uh, later on, he's gonna change Jacob's name to Israel. If we look in the New Testament, we see God changes Saul to Paul. Uh, we see all these transformations go on, and maybe we wonder why, why would God do such a thing? And he's not super explicit and forthright about it, but what we see is that God oftentimes attaches the new meaning of this name to the new mission he's sending them on. Now, if you think back to the covenant, Genesis chapter 12, we were first introduced to this whole Abrahamic covenant idea, and it was composed of three things. The first thing, God told Abraham, leave your, your land that you have, and I'm gonna give you a new land. Leave your family, I'm gonna give you a new family. Leave the inheritance of your father and take the inheritance that I'm going to give you. So it's land, family, and blessing. So this second part of the promise, family is wrapped up in Abraham's new name. Father of a multitude, father of many. This is who God has Abraham to be. Now, if you think back to the end of Genesis 11, we're let in on a little note about Abraham's wife, Sarah. We find out she's barren. 
She's barren. This is why this promise is such a big deal because Abraham's wife isn't supposed to have children, yet still God's promising that through his wife he will have a multitude of offspring. The first part of the obedience we see from Abraham, God says, Abraham, your, your name's Abraham now. And he's like, okay, I'm cool with it, and changes his name. Second thing we see, starting in verse nine from his obedience, says this, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, remember that threefold thing, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So this covenant is gonna move on forever through your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me, you, me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I am so excited that I get to teach about this this morning. <laughs> that's a weird thing. Like that's gonna be a sign of the promise. That's gonna be a sign of the covenant. And you look at it and you're like, okay, why, why is that? Is God just testing them? Like how much do you trust me? Go do this. And then they all go, or what's going on? This is kind of a goofy thing. But if you hang with me for a second, if we actually think about this, why would God have circumcision be a sign of the covenant? Well, let's think of the covenant again. The covenant involves the first part, land. God's gonna give them a bunch of land to become a nation. God's gonna give him family to help him become a nation. And God's gonna bless him. Abraham's gonna be a blessing. And then God's also going to bless everyone through the line of Abraham, which is eventually, it's Jesus. Jesus comes through the line of Abraham, which is a neat thing to see, right? Within this, if we remember again, Sarah being barren, uh, and, and God says, I'm gonna bless you, and this is gonna happen in, in further generations and generations and generations and generations to come, this really makes sense because what God is having him do, he's having him do something as a sign on that part of his body that has to do with fertility, uh, with reproduction, and with that carries the idea of future generations. Right, so God has him Take on this sign so that every time he sees the sign, which is probably pretty frequent, he would remember that God made a promise to him and that God will in fact make good on the promise that he made. Right, so while it seems like a weird thing, it's actually a logical thing when we begin to think about it. Later in the chapter, Abraham goes ahead and does everything that God calls him to do. If you look at chapter, or verses 15 and through 17, then also verse 21, um, God shows up to Abraham and says, your wife uh, Sarai or Sari or Siri or Sarai or however we wanna say that name, her, long, her name is no longer that, but now her name is just Sarah. So we can all figure that, we'd all say Sarah together. So he says, okay, let's change her name to Sarah. And then reminds him that Sarah is going to have a baby this time next year, and we're gonna name him Isaac. So they've waited 22 years so far to have a kid, and now God reminds them in one more year, you in fact will have a child through your wife Sarah, and you will name him Isaac. Now, it, interesting, three times in the, the scriptures, twice in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, Abraham is called the friend of God. That's a wonderful title to have, isn't it? Like if someone spoke of you, tell, hey, tell me about Jim, tell me about Nancy, what, what are they like? Well, they're a friend of God. Like that's a, that's a really, really neat thing. Twice in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. If we look at James chapter two, verse 23, that's the one reference we see of this um, in the New Testament. In James two, verse 23, says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. 
He's called a friend of God. Now, in the book of John, Jesus kind of talks more about what it looks like to be friends with God and even says that we are able to be friends with God. He says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friend if, if you obey. You are walking me. You are in relationship with me. We are doing this thing the way it's meant to be done if you do what I say. Now, it's neat that you and I also get to be called friends of God. If we walk with God, it means we obey God, and in doing so, we become friends of God. And really, this makes sense, right? When Jesus calls his disciples, what's he tell them? Follow me. And the expectation is they will actually stand up and follow him and go to where Jesus is going. I had the same expectation with my kids. You probably have a similar expectation with yours. On a Sunday afternoon, God forbid we find our way to Costco on a Sunday, but let's say we're there on a Sunday and it's stuffed to the rafters and it's a bunch of people with the Sunday scaries because school's tomorrow, we have no groceries and our budget doesn't fit the Costco bill and all of the things we all experience, it's just chaos. What I don't do, I don't, when we, when we get in the car, I don't just say, follow me and just have this expectation they're gonna follow me the entire time. Now I actually have um, kind of, not commands, but constant instruction to them throughout the way. Hey, we're gonna go left here, let's go left, go right, no, don't hit your sister. Um, <laughs> put your shoes back on, like all sorts of crazy. And the expectation is if you're gonna walk with me, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna do what I say. And we think of our relationship with God in those terms, it really makes sense. If we're going to walk with God, it means we obey God. Walking with God requires obedience. The second thing walking with God requires is faith. We see in chapter 18, one through 15, uh, God shows up to have a conversation with Abraham about his wife, Sarah. We'll pick it up in verse nine. They said to him, this is two angels speaking to Abraham and the Lord speaking to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now again, remember, Sarah's been barren her whole life. She could not have children. And now she's at that age in which she definitely should not be able to have children. So the whole thing is this double whammy they have stacked against them. God has promised she's gonna have a kid. You're gonna name him Isaac and all of my promises are gonna come, through, come true through him. But when we look at it, we look at the way the deck is stacked and it's kind of stacked against them, right? She's been barren for her whole life and, and now she's at that point in her age where she shouldn't be able to have children anyways. Her response in verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So she's not so much laughing at the Lord like, ha, 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 mocking God. She's more so looking at the situation and thinking like, there's just no way. Right, God says, I'm actually gonna have a kid now and I haven't been able my whole life and now this far late in my life, God's just gonna suddenly snap his fingers and make this whole happen. Like it's not meant to happen when you're that old. I actually Googled this yesterday. I wanted to see the most recent, like oldest age at which a woman has bore a child and found out that two days ago, a 74-year-old woman in India gave birth to twins. Right, and, and your response that, wow, oh my gosh. Why? Because it's not supposed to happen, right? 
So we have this, this circumstance where by natural things, we know this is not going to happen. So God is setting the stage for something supernatural to occur. I love the question that God asks in verse 14. He says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I love that question. In my life, when things are going well, the answer is like a hard no. Nothing's too hard. That, of course not. He's God. Nothing's too hard for God. But then maybe like I encounter some trials, some tragedies, some different difficult circumstances that enter our life and we begin asking the same question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And, and we think, well, historically, and I look back on my life and nothing's been too hard for him yet, but in the, cir- the cir- like circumstances I'm in right now, maybe this is the first time and the one time in history that God didn't see this coming. Out of all of the things God had lining up, out of all of the things that God had planned, maybe this time in my life is the one time that God's been caught off guard. Or we begin to ask the question, is, is, is anything really too hard for the Lord? And we look at our circumstances and our situation and we start thinking, maybe. Maybe this time. Maybe this is the one time God doesn't have it all under control. And I don't know what is going on in your life, what circumstances and situations you're walking through right now, but I'd encourage you to ask that question of yourself if you're walking through something difficult daily. This constant question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Last week, Bob talked about how it took God 23 years to make a good on this promise that, that, that God had given Abraham and Sarah before they actually gave birth to Isaac. And I heard that some of you took a pen and wrote down 23 right on your hand, just as a constant reminder that sometimes God's promises take some time to fulfill. Um, I would invite you this morning, do something similar. If you're walking through something hard and it'd be good for you to ask the question, is anything too hard for the Lord and you have a pen, just put a question mark on your hand as this constant reminder to ask yourself that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer every single time is no. Nothing is ever too hard for the Lord. If we're gonna walk with God, it requires faith. It requires the constant acknowledgement that God has a plan, that God's sticking to his plan. If God says something, he's going to do it. If God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. If we're going to walk with God, it's going to require faith. Walking with God also requires prayer. Walking with God requires prayer. If we look at chapter 18 again, verses 22 through 33, let me back up real quick and look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We're introduced again to this city called Sodom and Gomorrah. I was at a a wedding last night and someone was asking me what we were doing this morning in church uh, and the topic of Sodom and Gomorrah came up and they asked me the question, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed the entire city? Now, uh, if we look at the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16, 49 through 50, this isn't in your notes and it's not on the screen, so I'd encourage you write this down if you're taking notes. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, uh, the prophet Ezekiel talks about the sin of Sodom. It says this, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty 
and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. The sins of Sodom are more than what we just see here in Genesis, right? When we see chapter 19, when we get there, we just think the sin of Sodom was just homosexuality and that's it. But there's a much bigger picture painted of the city. They were prideful, they were gluttons, uh, they were arrogant, they were prosperous, yet refused to help the poor. And what we see in chapter 19 is that they did abominations in front of the Lord. Now, God says at the, in, here in 18, he says, I'm gonna go down there for myself and really see what's going on. And if it's as bad as it really is, as, as, as bad as I've heard it is, I'm just gonna destroy everything. I'm gonna destroy the city of Sodom. So Abraham goes before Sodom. Remember, Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom, so perhaps he's concerned for the well-being of his nephew. And he stands before God and intercedes. And we get to read his prayer beginning in verse 22. Chapter 18, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Notice how his heart and his concern is for the righteous people of the city, not for the wicked people of the city. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare, spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So God says, okay, well, you're, you're praying, you're interceding for the supposed righteous remnant who might still exist in Sodom and Gomorrah. If we find 50 of them, I won't destroy the place. 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah stands. Abraham comes back at him in verse 27 and he answers, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. So don't take this as him being argumentative, take this as him being caring, concerning and approaching the Lord in humility. God says, if there's 50, I won't destroy it. Abraham says, what about 45? If there's 45, I won't destroy it. 40? If there's 40, I won't destroy it. What about 30? If there's 30? If there's 30, I won't destroy it. When's he gonna stop? What about 20? God, if there's 20 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the whole city? If there's 20 righteous people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll spare the whole city. He comes back one more time. What about 10? If there's 10, if there's 10 righteous people still living in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare the whole city for the sake of the 10 righteous? And what we see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that there's not even 10 because God does go forward and continue to destroy the city. Again, we're looking at this whole story, all five stories, in light of what it looks like to walk with God. And when we're talking about walking with God, one of the requirements for us, if we're gonna walk with him, is that we talk with him, we pray. If we're going to walk with God, we're going to talk with God. That's what prayer is, it's conversation with the Lord. And this is what we're learning across campus, by the way. Highlands kids this morning, they're talking about um, if we walk with God, then we talk with God. In our five, six ministry, we're talking about if we walk with God, we talk with God, junior high, high school, all of it. This morning, everyone is learning if we're gonna walk with God, it means we talk with God. So parents, I'd encourage you, maybe do that as a family this week. Have some prayer time, whether that's in your meal time or when you wake up or mom, dad, nanny, whoever is bringing kids off to school in the morning. 
have some devoted prayer time so we can actually begin talking with God so our kids can learn at an early age what it really looks like for us to walk with him and then model that the best we can in our home. If we're going to walk with God, it means we're going to talk with God. And the scriptures are full, they're full of teachings for us to actually talk to God. And God, remember, God wrote this thing, right? So when the Bible tells us, hey, pray all the time, that's God saying, talk to me. Like, I'm up here, talk to me. Right? He's not like, like this super authoritative boss where you're afraid to knock on his door and be like, can I have a minute? Is it a good time? He's not like that at all. He says, pray without ceasing. Pray always, never stop. In Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, it says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So here's the deal. Anxious, pray. Not anxious and finding yourself in every other situation of life, still pray. In 2 Thessalonians 5.17, it says, pray without ceasing. So just always. If we're gonna walk with God, it means we try to have this relationship with him where we're constantly talking with him. And, and it's not as if we're bugging him. In fact, remember, God wrote this, pray without ceasing. So what he's saying is like, no, please, bug me. Bug me, come, if you've got something you need to talk about, come talk to me about it. I'm here, I'm available. I, I hear everything, I see everything, I know everything, I'm everywhere. Come and talk to me. If we're gonna have a relationship with him, we, doesn't that require conversation? If we're gonna have a relationship with a friend, doesn't that require conversation? If we're gonna have a good relationship with our spouse, doesn't that require conversation? It's the same thing with the Lord. If we're going to walk with him, if we're going to have a relationship with him, it means we talk with him. If we walk with God, we talk with God. Walking with God also requires resolve. Resolve, resolve is a weird word. It basically means it's this stick to idea or it's steadfastness or standing firm or uh, a, a more boring word would just be commitment. It's resolve. It's the choice that I'm gonna stand firm in the decisions that I'm making. And why do I say resolve? Because when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, we see that Lot had no resolve. That his life is filled with compromise and constant backsliding throughout the entire story. At the beginning of chapter 19, two angels show up to Sodom and Gomorrah to Lot's house and, and, and Lot says, come on in, let me, let me feed you and everything. And they say, no, we'll go sleep in the town square. Uh, and Lot says, no, you really shouldn't. This is kind of a bad place. You should come and stay with me. So Lot prepares a meal, um, prepares some water and everything and, and they have a meal and it says, before they're even able to go to sleep in chapter 19, verse four, it says this, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Okay, and we're not talking about like, bring them out to us so we can shake their hand and welcome them to Sodom. We're not talking about, hey, bring them out so we can get to know these new guests of yours. When, when the Old Testament speak of knowing them, it's talking about sex. 
It's like Adam um, lay with his wife and they knew one another, right? It, it's that, that's the context of this thing. So we have two angels who come to the city of Sodom staying in Lot's house and the men of the city come to essentially come have sex with the angels who God has sent as messengers to the city. Now at first, Lot seems pretty courageous. Very quickly he turns cowardly. See, he goes outside and begs with them and he says, brothers, do not do this wicked thing you're about to do. Do not do this. Seems courageous. But then very quickly we see compromise setting in because he says, don't take these men. Instead, I have these two virgin daughters. Why don't you take them and do as you wish with them? He's a coward. He's a coward. And this is the story of Lot. We'd like to say that it ended there, but it's this constant compromise throughout the rest of the story. God shows up, and again, he says, do you have any family relatives in the house? You've got to get them out of town. So Lot goes and talks to his future son-in-laws and said, listen, God's about to destroy this whole place. We've got to go. And his son-in-laws basically say, you're just joking. This is what happens when you compromise on your faith, when you're trying to live with feet in both worlds, when you're trying to walk with Jesus, but also walk according to the world. The world seems to, to they, they kind of catch on that you're not all that serious about this other life you're trying to live. And as you compromise, your witness begins to die too. And that's what happens here. Lot goes to his future family and says, we have got to go. And they say, yeah, whatever, man. The next day, angels come back and they say, Lot, we're, we're going right now. We need to leave right now. And then it says, but Lot lingered. See, Lot's got a, f- a feet in both worlds now, right? He's trying to listen to what God is saying, but he also kind of likes his hometown. He wants to do this in his own way. God says, leave now. And he says, maybe not yet. It says, then the angels grab him by the hand, he and his wife and his two daughters, and drag them out of the city and tell them, flee to the caves. You have to go now. And then Lot says, I'll go, but can I go to this other city over here? It's more compromise. I'll listen to you. I'll obey if I can do it on my terms. I'll flee the city, but I want to go where I want to go. There's more compromise. The angels tell them, don't even look back. They get out of the city. What does Lot's wife do? She looks back. And it says she's turned to a pillar of salt. More compromise. I wish we could say the story ended there. They end up in the caves because Zoar was too scary and Lot was a little bit afraid. Uh, and the ladies, his two daughters, look down on the valley and just see smoke and ashes. And in their mind, they probably think we're the only ones left. This is kind of a bummer. What are we gonna do now? And we know the difference between right and wrong. We know incest probably isn't a good idea. But in their mind, everyone's been destroyed. So what do the daughters decide to do? More compromise. Older sister says to younger sister, hey, let's get dad like really drunk tonight. And then tonight I'll go in and I'll sleep with him and he'll get me pregnant. So she does. Older sister comes to younger sister next to, hey, how about tonight we get, we get dad super drunk again and then you go sleep with him. It's more compromise. It's compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. Last week we saw how one act of unfaithfulness can lead to more acts of unfaithfulness. That's what we see in this story of two. Compromise just leads to more and more and more compromise. That's why it takes some resolve 
to stick to it with our faith. If we're going to walk with God, we need resolve. We need commitment. We need this stick to itiveness in our attitude, an attitude that says, I'm not gonna plant my feet in both worlds. I'm not gonna try to love the world over here and then try to love Jesus over here as well. We just can't do it. Why? One, we see our witness gets completely ruined. His own son-in-laws don't listen to him. And then two, when we're desiring what this world has, the best this world has to offer and also desiring the best things that God has to offer for us, in all likelihood, we probably end up getting neither. That's what happens here. He gets neither. If we're gonna walk with God, it takes commitment, it takes resolve. We need to plant both of our feet firmly in the truth of the scriptures and firmly in our relationship with the Lord. If we're going to walk with God, it requires resolve. Fifth and finally, if we're going to walk with God, it takes courage. It takes courage. Another lesson we learned from Abraham, and this time it's not necessarily a good one, like his lesson of prayer. If you think back to chapter 13, uh, we saw Abraham find himself in a new city, and he was a little bit of afraid what might happen with his wife. So if you recall that story, they go to the town, and he tells his wife, Sarai, her name's at the time, and says, hey, when we get here, um, let's tell everyone you're my sister, okay, because you're pretty attractive, And if the guys of the city see that I have an attractive wife, they're just gonna kill me. And I'll take you as my wife. But if you're my sister, then the guys will be like, hey, bro, what's up, man? Like, you got a cool sister. Maybe I can go on a date or something. And this is essentially what happens in chapter 13. And we think that uh, Abraham learned from his lesson. Apparently not. We get to chapter 20. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. We've we've been through this before, man. You don't gotta do this. God will protect you. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. God then shows up to Abimelech and says, hey, Abimelech, um, the the, the lady that you're with, she's married to a guy named Abraham, and you really should let her go or else it's not gonna go well for you. And he says, I haven't touched her. And God says, I know you haven't touched her. You haven't touched her because I kept you from doing so. Abimelech then goes and finds Abraham in verse nine of chapter 20. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham lets us in on why he did it. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham's acting out of fear. Even though God has time and time again proven that he will protect him and proven that he will make good on the promises that he's made, it's kind of that old habits die hard type of thing. Right, in an absence of courage, in an absence of just kind of some good decision making, we tend to just drift back to what we know. And for Abraham, that's fear. He has no courage. If we're going to walk with God, it is going to require some courage on our part. And it's not this courage we just have to muster up on our own. It's a courage that actually comes from God himself. In Joshua chapter one, verse nine, we get an insight to where this courage comes from. This is God speaking 
to his servant Joshua after the death of Moses, and Moses was a pretty sick dude with big shoes to feel, so Joshua is a bit fearful, and God tells him this, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? And he doesn't say be strong and courageous and do this on your own, you're on your own, best of luck, I'll be around if you need me. Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with us. He's with us wherever I go. Our courage doesn't just, we don't just muster up this strength on our own and think, I can do this. No, in fact, if we start thinking things like, I can do this, then we won't do this. Our courage comes from the Lord. Our courage comes from knowing that God is with us. One of our kids is kind of going through the whole scared of the dark thing right now. Anyone else have kids that have gone through that, right? So it's like, I don't want to sleep alone. I want to keep the light on. Um, He'll end up in our bed. He'll end up in his brother's bed. There's just all sorts of things going on there, right? And every night we walk through the same thing and we tell him, buddy, you're not alone because there's a clown in your closet, right? Like we, (laughs) no, no, you're not alone. Why? Because who's with you? And he knows. We ask him, buddy, who's, who's with you? God. Do you have to be afraid? No. Why? Because God's with me. Okay, and, and if you can convince a little tiny kid to understand that they don't have to be afraid of the dark because of the unknown that might exist past their field of view, I mean, if we're to figure that out in our life, right, when we're walking through whatever situations we have in our friends or in our family or in our workplace, or, your friendship, whatever it might be, whatever that thing is that that God has placed you in. Remember, God's in control of everything that's going on, right? Even the good things and the bad things we enter into our life, it's not like God is caught off guard. So if he's allowing us to walk through those things, it means he's walking through them with us. And when we're afraid, we find courage. Why? It's not this courage of our own. It's not this thing we muster up to do by ourselves. It comes from a recognition that God is with his people all the time. If we're going to walk with God, it requires courage. Five stories, five requirements for us if we're going to walk with God. I'd love to end with a question we started with in the beginning, and the question is, how is your walk? How is your walk? What's your relationship with God look like? Chances are, as we walked through five of these things, probably one or two of them stuck out to you and said, you know what, that's probably the one I think I really need to work on this week. Maybe it's the obedience thing. Maybe it's, you know, I, I want to follow God, but I kind of want to do it my way, not exactly how he asks me to do it. Maybe it's, maybe it's faith, just knowing that God makes good on his promises that you can trust him. Maybe it's prayer, right? We, well, we pray this morning, and maybe you pray in your small group, and, and that's about it, but uh, maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe it's just resolve and commitment to the Lord that I'm not going to live my life with feet in the, this world and a foot in, in God's kingdom. I, I want to live my feet with, with my feet firmly planted in, in, in God's truth and in my relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's courage. Maybe you're finding yourself this morning just kind of struck with fear about something. Maybe it's uh, a situation you're working through Uh, in your life, or maybe it's a job thing, maybe it's a relationship thing with your spouse, maybe it's just the fear. A bunch of you just sent kids off to school, right? 
And, and I'm not there yet, but I understand someday what type of fear is gonna come over me as I just let my kids leave my home and allow them to make decisions on their own. That's gotta be a scary thing. But guess what? This is the type of thing that God walks with us right through and we find courage and we find strength, not in knowing that we've got this on our own, but that God is sending us into a new situation. He's allowing us to walk into a new part of our life and he's walking right there with us. How's your walk? Would you bow your heads with me real quick? For some of you, maybe one of those five things really stuck out and resonated with you and maybe for some of you, you're just trying to figure out how to begin a relationship with the Lord, what that even looks like, what it even looks like to walk with God. Maybe you've been walking your own way, maybe you've been walking according um, just to the world and what the world teaches us and what the world system just encourages and everything else and maybe this morning you're finding yourself uh, a little lost of what to do next and you're longing for something more. In John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this, Jesus says to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to walk with God, that's going to start by beginning a relationship with Jesus because he is the way into that relationship with God. What does that look like? It looks like a few things. It looks like acknowledging that you're broken, that you're a sinner, that you're living your life by your own rules and that you need something better. It looks like understanding that you can't walk your way to God, that you actually need him to pull you out of the life you're living and place you into relationship with him. The beauty of the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus is that God made a way for us to actually walk with him, that God made a way for us to have relationship with him and that way is through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he came and lived a perfect life, a perfect life that you and I are incapable of living, that he came and died on our behalf. He didn't die because we're lovely, but he died to make us lovely. He didn't die because we're good, but he died so that we could be good. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God did in fact raise him from the dead to defeat sin and to defeat death, then you and I too can be saved. I'd invite you this morning, um, even as we sing, whatever that looks like for you, to cry out to God and to confess to him and just let him know, Jesus, I believe. I've been living my life my own way and I want to live it your way. I want to step into this relationship and walk with you. I'd encourage you to do that this morning, either during our last worship song or to come down front with the prayer team afterwards and just tell them, you know what, I think I'm ready to begin a relationship with Jesus and we'd love to help you get that started. Let me pray for you. God, help us walk with you. God, we don't want to walk according to the ways of the world. We don't want to walk according to the ways of our own flesh. God, we want to walk the way that you've asked us to walk. So this morning, we ask for your help. We ask uh, for your help in being obedient, God. We ask that you'd help us believe uh, that in, 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 in times of our life when we find disbelief, that you would help us overcome 
that disbelief, God, that you would help us cry out to you. If we're gonna walk with you, that we would talk with you. God, help us stand firm in our commitment to your scriptures and firm in our resolve and our relationship with you. And fifth and finally, God, help us have courage, not a courage that comes from within, this thing that we just have to muster up on our own, but a courage that comes from you and the comfort you give us in your Holy Spirit. God, we love you and ask that you'd help us live a life that glorifies you above all else. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, 